Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Beth McDermott is the author of Figure One, Pine Row Press, and a chapbook titled How to Leave a Farmhouse, Park- Porkbelly Press. Her poetry appears in Pine Row, Tupelo Quarterly, Terrain.org, and Memorias. She's an assistant professor of English at the University of St. Francis and recipient of a Distinguished Teaching Award at Illinois Speaks Microgrant and first place in the regional Mississippi Valley Poetry Contest. Beth, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, James. Well, we're really excited to have you here, and I'm excited to uh, to talk about your, your book. So your very first poem, Matryoshka, perfectly sets the stage for figure one. The nested layers of lines and stanzas interconnected like the Russian dolls that inspired the poem. How did you decide which poem should lead your collection? Well, I I think there were a couple of things I was thinking about. One was um, what would be like a strong poem or something that could handle being the first poem in the book. Uh, and for that, I did dialogue with some other people to try to get their opinions because poets don't always have the ability to judge what their strongest poems are. Uh, and also, I have often been thinking about the gesture of um, the first poem in a book and how that acts as a kind of invitation or um, some kind of, of welcome and how I wanted that opening gesture to be. I was really interested in how the poem uh, Matryoshka has both the ekphrastic thread that my book has, but also biology and thinking about what it means to break something down into its component parts. So for me, it, it, it served that purpose as a kind of gesture into what's this book going to be about? So the, uh, the poems in this collection retain much of a blank page's silence. You displace that silence so intentionally with enjambment and indentation and other methods. What is your process for refining how your poetry appears on the page? And how do you think about the role white space plays in a poem? I am uh, a pretty incessant reviser. I think many poets probably, uh, well, I guess it depends on the poem, but some can take a really long time and go through many iterations. Um, I guess I, I know I know I've got something to work with when I'm starting get to get down to the line level and really think about the syntax in relation to the line, um, the strength of certain words images, punctuation. So I do tend to revise for a long time and even wait on on poems before sending them out for any kind of feedback, uh, sometimes for years. Uh, White space, I love music. I love thinking about the importance of white space in a lot of other poets' work. I do think what is unsaid is oftentimes as important as what is said. So for me, it's, it's Definitely both a uh, sonic aspect of the poem and an individual one as well. 
Absolutely. And I think you're, that's very effective. And uh, I remember I saw Billy Collins recently and he talked about poetry as a displacement of silence and prose is filling the page. And they're just very, very different. It was in response to a question about a, someone who wrote prose getting into poetry. And he said, well, they're very, very different skills. You're almost starting from scratch when you go from prose to poetry. So how do you approach creating ekphrastic poems so that both the inspiring work is respected and something novel, something poetic is created? And your poem, Can You Be Present? Uh, it's a particularly effective example, including this stanza. Can you accept how fire starters, mulch makers, nest builders, and compost unra composters unraveled crepe yarn to build an ark that, when lifted, the speckled eggs would float against the silk? Well, I really appreciate the uh, suggestion there in your question that um, I try to be... I guess, respectful or ethical um, with the treatment of someone else's images. Because I think ekphrasis, and I know you've talked a lot about ekphrasis on this podcast. Um, I know the A.E. Stallings interview talked a little bit about it as well. Um, ekphrasis, it's, it's got a long critical history of sometimes being antagonistic <laughs> and I really actually enjoyed that because I do think the competition so to speak between the visual image and the words that one can come up with in order to try to capture that image is a lot of fun but at the same time I love painting I love photography and I love imagery um, and so I don't like to think of myself as just merely competing with somebody else's um, medium I, I will tell you I try to spend a lot of time I'll go back to the image over and over and over again until the point where it's like what have I missed okay nothing I've looked at all of this why am I still here um, and it's it's really just that over and over again, um, sometimes reading beyond the image to learn a little bit about the materiality, what the artist's process was, what some of their own philosophy might be. So there's a lot of research that goes into how I um, approach ekphrasis. Yeah, I had the uh, opportunity to be part of a what was called the double take exhibit where it was artists visual artists teamed up with a literary artist and it was poems for the most part poems inspired by the artwork but in some cases the other way around and it was a wonderful collaboration there was i think 40 of us it turned into a book and uh, and they complemented each other and yeah certainly when i i love uh creating poetry based on images and then i want to encourage people to go seek it out Part of what I want to do is I want people to go Google it and look it up and and investigate and learn more about that piece of art that that I found so striking that, yes, you spend a lot of time absorbed into and researching. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't resist, related to that, I couldn't resist Googling some of the sources, the works of art and other resources to learn more. The poems in this collection stand alone and also tickle the reader's curiosity. An example, in... On metaphor in the rural historic structural survey of New Lenox Township, you use as inspiring material, amazingly, a report that is over 200 pages long. I tracked it down. <laughs> uh, such an unlikely source of inspiration. You write, 
Thanks to Wiss Jenner Elsner and Associates, I can spot a spindle work porch and jigsaw cut trim. Did you intentionally seek out source material through research or, in this case, just stumble on a study or stumble on art that struck you in some way or a mix of both? That's a really great question. I I think it's probably a little of both. Um, I don't remember how I stumbled upon that rural historic structural survey, but I do know that I was really interested in seeing um, some of the landscape around where I had grown up change and wondering a little bit about the processes for determining what happens uh, with, with some of this land and some of the structures um, that are on these properties. And so I, I may have sought that particular report out. Um, why I ended up reading, reading it is another question, but I must have found some of the language in there uh, inspiring and thinking about the way in which someone might make such decisions on what are likely very objective empirical grounds. But at the same time, um, I, I was imagining that there would be an emotional component to that where one can't help but be subjective um, in thinking about, oh, I really you know feel a certain way about this particular place and how that is very much a part of the history of poetry about place. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it was probably um, something that I was, I, I stumbled upon, but also was deliberately interested in. Well, I mean, I think that that's really cool to hear you fill in the blanks there. I mean, it was such a slight poem built on such a dense, um, you know, multi-hundred page, fairly technical in its field report. And I just loved how you just took a thread out of it and amplified it. That was, that was really, uh, really cool. Cause I think it could have, uh, it could have become a, this dense report becomes a very dense poem and it became something very different. So I thought that was a, a great reflection of it. Oh, thank you. So images of ballet, dance, and the ballet of nature of birds, insects, and flight are recurring themes through the collection uh, the presentation of your poem, so light on the page, so open empty space like the sky, reinforces these images, at least in my interpretation. What interpretations of your work have most surprised you from this book in advance readers and other poems you've created? Well, I think I I really was... Um, it's an interesting experience to get blurbs back after you request them. And I think I was really um, honored by all of the blurbs I received and a little uh, surprised, but it definitely in an excited way. Um, Marianne Baruch had referred to, I think, the poems as uh, post-apocalyptic. <laughs> and so that, that was definitely something I hadn't thought about. Um, I know that I am very inspired by science and technology and um, that perhaps comes through in, in some of the poems, maybe not all of them, but um, that was, that was cool. That was exciting. I, I don't really know what that means for, um, for me, but I definitely think that was exciting. Cool. So related to images of birds and flight, I was particularly struck by constructing Audubon's The Birds of America. 
with, which ends with the lines, he marked an X on his map, left for his gun, and went back again. It immediately compelled me to start over at the beginning and read the poem over again. It also, like other poems, I was hadn't thought about Audubon in forever. I knew the name, and I knew, I knew something about him at some point. But then I went back and started researching with that little hook at the end of your poem and went, hmm... Yeah, there's an interesting history with Audubon that I had not really paid attention to before. Uh, and it, it was very effective at getting me to want to learn more. So yeah, talk a little bit more about about uh, your thought process with a hook like that. I think anytime I can write a poem or read a poem that someone else has written that leads me to um, think a little bit more about history or art or, you know, whatever subject it may be. Um, I think that's, that's great because there's something hopefully really conversational. Um, I don't see myself as being, you know, too critical of someone like Audubon, but at the same time, I do, um, think the actual person, uh, had some interesting approaches for how birds were going to be, you know, quote unquote captured. Um, I mean that in a couple of different ways. So yeah, I, I guess to go back to the tendency or the impulse to frame something, um, what, what is sort of at stake for the artist, regardless of the medium and saying like, I'm going to stop this right here and try and limit the interpretation mm -hmm. of it in this particular, for example, habitat or pose. Um, and Audubon obviously did that with the intention of disseminating really fantastic information and knowledge, but at the same time, I think that that's, I don't know, um, that's probably not my ideal. Um, and of course, I'm not, I'm not a ornithologist or whatever the, the particular word right, might be, but um, my ideal would be to uh, have multiple perspectives weigh in on something if, if ever possible. And of course, to have the subject itself speak, which I am under no, uh, I guess, uh, false pretenses that I'm able to do that when I write poetry, um, even though that would sometimes be something I'm, I'm hoping could happen. Um, I realize I, I can't speak for some of the subjects of the painting. So, so I've asked several poets how they approach the challenge of constructing their books, which poems to include, how to order and organize the poems. The most common response I hear, and it's the approach I take, is to print out all the poems and place them out on my living room floor, to manipulate the poems in a physical space, to step back and see the entire book visually. What approach do you take in constructing, what approach did you take in constructing this book, both the poems to include and how to arrange them? Well, the poems to include, I, I tried to have a few more than what's there in the book. I tried to make it longer, and there were some that 
no matter how much I tried to force them or thought to myself, oh, I could make them a little better. They were just a little too weak. Um, and so I had to take them out. In terms of arranging the poems, uh, I like the floor better than the wall. <laughs> and um, actually, like, getting, you know, in the book, so, like, stepping into the, if you imagine the, the floor of your room being covered with all the pages, stepping in and, like, physically moving it around. I remember the first time I, I did that, I was actually sweating and breathing heavy, heavy afterwards, and I was like, this is the first time poetry has made me get a little winded. <laughs> um, but one thing I thought was helpful was to identify threads and then color code them. So mm. I had like purple was the acrostic thread, green was sort of an eco ecological thread, and then I think I had orange for um, landscape home type poems. And then um, making sure that there weren't places where there was too heavy of one color or if there was that there was some kind of intentionality for that that is a great idea i've asked this several times and every time there's some new idea that is a placeholder in my mind uh, i actually when i've got a chat book that i've got submitted to some contests and the coach that i'm working with poetry coach who i interviewed in an earlier episode of the podcast uh he actually saw that he saw that i clumped things too much and he declumped <laughs> the organization of the book and the color coding would really help with that. I'd love that idea. I'm going to use that. Uh, so many of your acrostic poems have effective turns. We've talked about this a little bit. Becoming more than rich descriptive images from the source material. A couple of examples. In mutation from a skin cancer biopsy to a beach scene. And in arm self-portrait 1976, you connect Robert Maplethorpe's arm self-portrait to the tiny quarter-sized Barbados thread snake, which I had to look up and look at. It's the cutest little thing. Um, what is your approach for discovering or creating these connections? Are they happenstance? Are they a ton of research? Is it a bit of luck combined with a bunch of research? Yeah, probably the latter. Sometimes I, I do try to, to fit things together, sort of like a puzzle. And um, it doesn't always work, um, but sometimes there's for example, a, a quality in the first uh, part of that metaphor that I can then see picked up um, in, in another or something linguistic um, that I can see picked up there. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say definitely probably a little bit of research and a little bit of luck. Cool. Well, I love the title of your book and the reference tucked into the partition task as Figure one shows she gives her seed without hesitation to the next available ant. In many cases, the author has little involvement in the title, cover, and interior design of their book. That is left up to the publisher. What was your journey from completed manuscript to published book? So it was pretty good. And I did have a lot of say. So my book is um, from Pine Row Press. And I did have a lot of say, which I... Um, I realize isn't always the case, uh, but didn't, yeah, didn't really, I had a lot of autonomy. Um, the cover artist who I worked with, uh, her name is Angelica and she, um, has her own illustration business. This was actually her very first book design. So I, uh, we both really enjoyed since it was my first book and, um, 
Angelica's first time designing a cover, we both really enjoyed this process. Yeah. Well, the book cover is, I've seen the image. I've, I've, uh, I've got a printout of your book. I don't have the physical book, but the, uh, the cover art is fantastic. So that's the first book cover. That's really extraordinary. Well, now I'm going to pass the mic over to you to share several poems from figure one. Portrait of an artist pool with two figures. The pool paintings were about the surface of the water, the very thin film, the shimmering two-dimensionality. David Hockney. As the artist's former lover watches the swimmer with an intensity only rivaled by chromium oxide, the toe of his loafer inches towards the pool edge, bowed head sloping like the mountains that fade to lavender smoke-filled sand, where the patio might have extended, banana leaves issue a threat. Sword tips backed by mountain peaks, two redwood dagger trees, even the onlookers sun-kissed coiffure shields the swimmer's horizontal body from becoming a loner ousted from the scenery. Reflection. I wanted to name your doppelganger during our post-bath nightly ritual. Polar fleece sleeper seated on the Formica counter whose wet straw hair I arced back before it parted and fell, curtaining your eyes. You'd press the panoramic bathroom mirror as if you were the driver taking corners to a feeder house. The crushed stalks twisting into disappearance, the ears swept by curved blades to a spinning cage, raining grain. Pentimenti. Except for the faint outline of a second ear, Caravaggio reworked nothing about the taking of Christ, using pure lead white so you're caught beneath the soldier's gilded leather glove reflected in the highly polished metal opposite the flames made by a billowing cloak how would you feel subjected to such scrutiny illuminated by the chiaroscuro of multiple furrowed objects forget judas gripping your shoulder like a worried brother Oh, thanks so much for selecting those those three poems. I've got a couple of questions to dig in a little deeper. So after reading Portrait of an Artist, Pool with Two Figures, and Pentimenti, I was immediately curious, uh, like I mentioned in earlier questions about the source material. I had slight memories of Caravaggio's painting that your your poem immediately brought to mind and when I went to look at it. And as I mentioned before, I collaborated with a photographer in an exhibit of ekphrastic poems, uh, the poems were placed alongside the art that inspired the poems. How do you think the perception of your poetry would change if an edition of Figure One existed with all of the inspiring published artwork uh, right next to your poetry, which would be a, a logistics licensing nightmare? So setting <laughs> setting that aside, um, how would you – would it enhance it? Would it detract from it? Um is it better that people have to go do a little work to dig in and find out what the inspiration was, which is easy to do, but still takes a little bit of work? What are your thoughts about that? That's really interesting. Uh, I I would hope that 
the reader's experience wouldn't, um, I, I would hope that having the images next to the poems would aid the reader's experience. Um, I think, I think I'm very interested in, in this, I guess it, it's different depending perhaps on what the image is. Um, and certainly the degree to which our society and culture and critics have determined the value of certain images. But I'm really interested in how quickly we um, create and share and digest images in our society. And so if at all my poems are able to help someone stop and reflect and kind of think through their own emotional reaction as the history of the crisis um, tells us. This was not just an exercise in description, but the early students working in a crisis were trying to impart their emotional experience of an artwork that they had uh, been in the presence of, but the reader wouldn't necessarily have had, have had access to it. This was pre-internet. So the way in which I am able to access most of these images very quickly um, through online research is, of course, different from long, long ago. But I would hope that were they to be in the same space and a, and a reader slash viewer would be before them, I would hope that that would be um, an even better experience and that my poems would would encourage that kind of, of looking and reflecting that uh, these paintings and photographs have done for me. Cool. Well, I'm intrigued by reflection. The surreal images demand multiple readings. I read the poem out loud to my family and heard back multiple interpretations, which was fun. I don't want you to interpret the po your own poem. That's never a good idea. But what was your inspiration for this poem? Or, or, what was the spark that got you started writing it, if you remember? Yeah, I. this is the oldest poem in the book in the sense that it didn't... Um, I, I, I published it recently outside of the book, but it had started... I had started writing it um, over a decade ago, and most of these poems sort of fall within the 10-year span, um, and I just couldn't figure it out. It's it's sat in a folder on my desktop, and I was about to trash it, and I thought, ah, let's just see, because if I, I tend to be a conservative person when it comes to whatever. Like, if I can get a little more something out of whatever it is, I'll try. So I tried and um, I didn't hate it. And so I kept working on it. Um, it it definitely, I think, required, because the, the poem was inspired by, um, at the time, combing my daughter's hair when she was really just a baby. Um, and it, I, think it, I think it took a long time for me to sort of distance myself from being the mother of someone so young and being able to look back at that poem and um, think about time and change and what it means to, to be the driver and the ways in which parents experiences of what it's like to uh, be in charge of someone 
once they get to a certain age, really does a 180. <laughs> <So>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's lovely. Yeah, that's the, uh, you've, a couple of the poets that I've interviewed have talked about this. It's certainly been my experience that there can be poems. And that's, I think, surprises people that don't write poetry that you can set aside for months, years, come back to. It's like this problem you're noodling on. And the outcome might just be one, is usually just one single page of mostly blank space. And yet it can be so hard. Um, so I think for poets out there that are frustrated that they spent a few days on something or a week on something and it's not what they want, that's okay. It could mm -hmm. take years to create something beautiful, and that's totally normal. It's not that you're failing as a writer or a poet. Uh, so it's great to hear you share that it can take so long to get something that, that you're proud of, and that's normal. So finally, what are your plans to support Figure One, and what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on scheduling uh, some more readings. We're at this interesting time where I think uh, some folks are still doing the Zoom reading routes, and then um, some places are willing to do in person. So um, I've fortunately had a couple of local readings, but trying to schedule a few more. It's hard for me during the school year uh, just because of work. And... Um, I'm in that space where I think probably a lot of writers who have already had first books um, have experienced where I'm anxious to start something new, um, but uh, not quite ready to let this book go just yet. So um, hopefully I'll, I'll get to a point. Of course, the exciting thing would be to do something completely different, which I highly doubt will happen. You know, I'd like to see myself suddenly put out a collection of prose poetry, but probably won't be the case, but that's all right. I'll take what I can get. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your poetry with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. And Good luck with your book, Figure One. It's a wonderful read and just uh, really a beautiful displacement of white space. Well, thank you very much for having me, James. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. <laughs> <laughs>